So just by way of reminder, we're reading a salutation, Paul's salutation to this letter to the church in Corinth. We call it 1 Corinthians. More than likely it's not his actual first letter, but it is a greeting to this church. And he's using this opportunity at the very outset of the letter to begin to chip away at the worldview that was leading to the errors in the church. And as we move through the letter, we're going to begin to see some of their errors. As is often the case, the problem is not the problem. The problem is a fruit of the problem. And that's what he's doing here. And, and you can imagine the things that he's saying they would be agreeing to. Yes, 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 we agree, we agree, we agree. And then he's going to begin to address them. Uh, the, the, the flow of thought is almost like this. Yes, we agree. Yes, we agree. Yes, we agree. And then he's going to say, okay, then there are divisions among you. That shouldn't be. There are, you're taking one another to court. That shouldn't be. If these things are true about you as a church, if, if you all agree this is who you are, then these things that are characterizing you shouldn't be. They need to be changed according to who you are. That's what he's doing. And what we get out of this, in, in addition to all of that application, is what I've been calling apostolic ecclesiology. He's really just describing Christians and a Christian church. What is true of all Christians and all churches. And we get to see how he views those things. We've seen so far the owner of the church is God. The status of the church is those sanctified in Christ Jesus. The calling of the church is that they're called to be saints or called to be holy. And then last Lord's Day we looked at the doctrine of the Catholicity of the church and that phrase together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What, he's, what he was saying was, to the saints in Corinth, you are one of many churches, and so there ought to be amongst all Christians and all Christian churches a spirit of Catholicity or, or solidarity or unity that draws you all together. There, there should not be amongst Christians uh, an air or a spirit of self-sufficiency and seclusionism or sectarianism. We, we ought not to think that. We are not uh, curators of our own unique brand of Christianity. We are recipients of a faith that has been once for all delivered. And we are, we are coming in the line of those who have paved the way before us. And we are hoping to preserve that, to carry the torch, and then to hand it off to those who will come after us. And that's, that's what, he, what we see there in that phrase, together with all those who in every place. Now today, we're going to move to the next point, which is sort of a nugget extracted out of what we saw last week. He was describing the fact that all Christians everywhere share in this same universal faith, universal commitment, and a part of that commitment he names actually in that phrase because he describes the saints in Corinth and all Christians as those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's going to be the focus of our attention, that, that phrase. Those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now first, as we often do, let's just think about the grammar. Just the words that are here. We have in this phrase an act or action that is to be performed. To call upon. That's the action. And then there is the object upon which the action is performed, found in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's an action, and then there's the object upon which the action is to be performed. 
The, the phrase that we have in the ESV, call upon, is one word, and it is an intensified form of the verb to call, which we've already seen in this verse earlier. Same word, call. It's just a general term. And here, again, it's intensified. We'll, we'll get to what that might mean later. And then we have that phrase, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It means literally just that. His name, His title. We could say the denomination that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we take this phrase merely grammatically and we say, well, what, what do the words on the page mean? Well, we would say it, it would mean literally to, to cry out or to cry aloud, to say out loud. Or if we wanted to deal with that, that verb to call upon, to literally to rest one's cry down upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. But in chapter 12 of this book, we're going to see this truth stated. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. In other words, being able to confess, sincerely confess the Lordship of Christ requires more than just words. It requires a, a work of the indwelling, in, empowering, illuminating Holy Spirit. To sincerely confess Christ as Lord in any sense is a theological matter. It's not just verbal. The words on the page, call upon the name, taken that way, it's just, it's just verbal. But we have to understand there's more to it than just that. To call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ is a theological action. And Paul's using this action to describe all Christians everywhere. In other words, it is a distinctly Christian action to call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so I want to open this up a little further, uh, open up what we might call the theological implications and uh, meaning of this calling upon the name, but we're going to deal, deal with it backwards now. First, the, the object on which this act is being performed we're looking for the biblical and theological import of this. When we're reading the Bible, we have to understand, because the Bible comes to us in a context of, of the whole Bible, a revelation from God, every word and phrase is sort of like a bag of, that brings with it everything else in the Scripture that might come along with that, that might be attached to it. We, we can't just draw words out and slap them down and analyze them that way. There's, it all, it's all theological, we could say. So we want to get behind that, this theological concept of calling upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean? We know what it says. What does it mean when someone calls upon the name of the Lord? That's the question. So there's the name that could merely be referencing the title, the words on a page. But we know that once names are given, they're always associated with more than just the title. If you're, if you're Googling baby names, you, you find out you're pregnant, you start Googling baby names, you can read a whole list of names and all they mean to you is what they sound like. You're putting it together with your last name, with a middle name, how does this sound? What's it going to be like to say this name? Is there a nickname that I can use here? That's, that's all it is. It's not associated with anything more than what, what the words and the sound uh, carry with them. Maybe may the meaning, but still not attached to a person. But once you write that name on a birth certificate, all of a sudden that name carries with it from that instant at least this human being. 
his or her father or mother, their birth date, their age, their weight, their gender. All of that stuff is now associated with that name. It, it, it carries more with it. A name is not just words on a page. The name stands for one's character or position or reputation. For example, in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 13, it says that David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. From that point onward, King David brought with it this, this reputation, this name, the guy who slaughtered 18,000 Edomites. And you, you know that they sang of David. Solomon has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. That came with the name David. From that point onward, nobody would ever know of King David without immediately bringing to mind all that he had accomplished. King David, when that name was mentioned, it brought with it battlefield success. His name encapsulated his conquests. In Genesis chapter 11, we read this of the people of the plain of Shinar. They said, come, let us build a city, build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, now they're not saying, once we get the, the tower built, then we'll all have titles to be able to call each other. That's not what they're saying. They had names. Listen to what, what John Gill says about this. I think this is good. It helps us to understand what it means to have a name. He says, They proposed by erecting such an edifice to spread their fame and perpetuate their name to the latest posterity, that hereby it might be known that at such a time and in such a place were such a body of people, so that as long as this tower stood, they would be had in remembrance it being called after their names. In other words, as long as the tower stood, they would be known. Known by what? By the tower, what they had accomplished. You wouldn't look at the Tower of Babel and say, oh yeah, I remember Jerry, he always wore those weird shoes. No, you'd say, there were some people here at some point who built this thing. It stood to represent their name. It was associated with building the tower. It com it, the, their name would encapsulate their accomplishment. Just as a legal name is given to distinguish one person from another, in this sense, a name, metaphorically, is always associated with something that distinguishes one person from another person or one group from another group. You made a name for yourself and that distinguishes you. Your reputation might distinguish you or, or your character or your accomplishments or failures might distinguish you. After the, the scene with Bathsheba, now all of a sudden we think of David not only as the man who slew his ten thousands, but that man in the episode with Bathsheba. And, and that, that never left. He, he will always have that. It's, it's recorded in, in God's Word. It's, it's always there. It carries with him, whether accomplishments or failures. One, will, one lives and eventually will obtain a name by these distinguishing qualities. And then from that time forward, their name is always associated with those qualities. That name will follow them. So, so think of it this way. You're living your life. You might get to a point where you, you build a name. And then from that time forward, that name goes with you. And even, what do we say? Your reputation has preceded you. 
Your name has actually come before you. When they said you were coming, before you got here, before I saw your face, before I read your name tag, your accomplishments preceded you. They paved the way, those things that you had done. Now in this passage, the saints in Corinth, as well as all Christians everywhere, are described as calling upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the name or reputation here, it's not just any name. It's the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not just His title. It's His distinguishing features. The distinguishing features of His person and His accomplishments. I was explaining last night to my family, people of a, a Spanish or Hispanic descent, they might have a name tag that says J-E-S-U-S on it. Right? And when we see that, we're kind of taken back. Because that name carries with it so much that it's odd for us to read that as just a normal name. It would be the same if they had the name Judas, right? You'd think, ah, that's, that's kind of odd that that would just be a normal name because it, it automatically carries with it so much. Well, here we're talking about the person and accomplishments of Jesus Christ. The object of the call is the Lord Jesus Christ according to His Name, and that is his reputation or his character or his accomplished works. Now, we know just from this letter that the Corinthians had received through Paul's preaching at least 18 months worth uh, a, a thorough knowledge of the person and works of Jesus Christ. But there are several statements he makes which shows us where he kind of funneled in his teaching. He says in chapter 1, verse 6, that the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. In other words, I came and preached about Christ. I told you about Christ. Well, what about Christ? Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. So he had, de he had delved into the crucifixion and the implications of the crucifixion of Christ. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says, I did not, decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Chapter 3, verse 11, he says, No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's laid this foundation concerning Christ in His opening ministry. What about Him? Specifically His crucifixion and all of the implications that come out of that. In chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, he says, I delivered to you, this is what I taught you, as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. What He's saying is, I articulated to you in my teaching the meaning and application of Christ's death, the, 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 the reality and implications of our sins the historical truth and reality and implications of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And I also explained to you how all of that fit with the testimony of the Scriptures before it ever took place. All of these truths about the work of Christ for the Corinthians would be assumed under this phrase, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christians are people who call upon Him according to that information, that reputation. That's what He's saying. Now we could go beyond that. 
Because the title that's given here of Christ carries with it a lot, which fills in what we would include in His name beyond those explicit texts. I would assume this was all a part of Paul's teaching. He's Lord, which means He is the Master and King. He's the ruler and judge, which means His Word is law, which means He's entrusted with a position of oversight and power and dominion. He's Lord Jesus Christ, but He's not just Lord. He is our Lord, which means He's our peculiar Master and King, our peculiar ruler and judge, the the special, exclusive ruler and judge of His people, the church. Later on, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 8, For us, there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. He is our Master, deserving our allegiance, entrusted with our care and oversight. A slave in a household, when he runs out of something that he needs to do the, the business, well, he goes to the Master of the house. He says, I, I'm, I need you to give me what I need to do my job. When, when food is needed by a slave, well, the, it, the master takes the responsibility of service and care and oversight for those in his household. To say that Christ is my master, my Lord, means He has taken upon Himself the responsibility of my care, my oversight. He's our King, ruling over us in perfect equity, defending us especially with omnipotent power. Because He's, he's not just a Lord, He's our Lord. He's our ruler and lawgiver to whom we owe unwavering obedience. He's our judge, the ultimate standard of righteousness who will vindicate us at last. Our Lord. But He's not just Lord. He's not just our Lord. His his given name is placed here. He is Jesus. Our Lord Jesus Christ. That was the name that was given to Him first by the angel and then by His parents. His name was to be Jesus. Why? For He will save His people from their sins. The name means Yahweh saves or the salvation of Jehovah. In Jesus, God saves His own people from their sins and the just condemnation that should come to us because of our sins. If you belong to Jesus, one sin that you have committed already this morning should damn you forever, but God has given a Jesus, a salvation, a Savior to forgive those sins, to rescue us from the condemnation that we deserve because of our sins. And He's done this by taking the punishment that belongs to our sins and belongs to us onto Himself. And then He gives us Himself as salvation and life. He is the salvation of our people or of God's people. Jesus has taken from us what would damn us and also given to us what will sustain us forever. This is our Jesus. We call upon this name. Solomon had slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. 
But this Jesus in His own body on the tree has slain an untold number of sins from a multitude of men that no one can number. A thousand millions, each of us, having our own million millions of sins. Just one of them enough to damn us to an eternity of eternities in hell. And yet Jesus saves us from all of them, all by Himself, all of His people. He's Jesus. That's what the name means. And then He's the Christ, the Lord's anointed which we've covered before. He's, that means he's, he's the prophet of God, the very Word of God incarnate, revealing God to spiritually blind men and giving us the sight to see Him. He's priest, having made purification for sins by His blood and now living to make a priestly intercession for us in heaven. He's king, seated upon His throne in heaven, having defeated death and hell, ruling the affairs of man for the good of His people until such a time as He will return in glorious triumph over all of His enemies that will make David's conquest look like He won an arm wrestling match. He's our king. You see, when we speak of the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's it's all of that and more that we're, we're taking into account. In His name. It's not just a title. It's the person and the work of the man which earned Him a reputation and then that reputation following Him forever. It's Christ and all His distinguishing traits and works which constitute His name. If we wanted to put this back into that definition that John Gill gave, we would say that Christ proposed by accomplishing such a salvation to spread His fame and to perpetuate His name to the latest posterity, that hereby it might be known that at such a time and in such a place was such a man, so that as long as this salvation endures, He will be had in remembrance. This salvation being called after His name, for He is the Christ, and His name being called after the salvation because He is Jesus who saves His people from their sins. That's the object of this action. It is the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We could go every every Lord's Day until we're all gone. We could go and just unpack this name, His person, His works, and the, the infinite and indescribable perfections of His name, His person, His works. And at the end of every sermon, we could just say, now call upon that name. Call upon that. What did we learn today? Is He God and man? Call upon that. Is He true God? Call upon that. Is He true man? Call upon that. We could go on and on and on. All of this comes in to fill out this person that we call the Lord Jesus Christ. That's His name. Now that being said, we're prepared to consider the act itself, the calling. Again, this act is used to describe all Christians everywhere. All Christians are said to do this thing. There might be many things that all Christians do, but in this verse, this is the one that that all Christians do. They call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I said this word was an intensified form of the verb call. It's not merely to say. It's not merely to verbalize. Nor is it, I don't think, merely to say out loud or to call out loud. This particular call carries with it the entire disposition of the whole man. 
We might say that to call upon here is to bring oneself in whole-souled expectant anticipation upon the whole name of Christ. Everything that He is, you bring all that you are in expectant uh, anticipation, waiting to receive from Him all of that. All that He is, you're expecting to receive that from Him. That is to call. Think of it this way. Imagine a driver is waiting to pick up somebody from the airport. And so they just stand there and they hold a sign with the person's name on the sign. Now, they are in that moment essentially communicating. There's communication which is taking place. But they're just standing there. It doesn't require much work. You stand there, you wait for the person to respond, Hey, that's my name or I'm, I'm this person. Now compare that scene with a small child who's just lost her father in the middle of a very busy airport where she's never been before. And she's running frantically shouting her dad's name. In, In that sense, she is also communicating, but she's also in that communication hanging all of her hopes upon her calling and her daddy's ability to respond She's communicating and bringing her whole self to rest upon daddy's ability to hear me and then to be daddy to me because I know when my daddy hears me, he's not going to act like a stranger. He's going to act like what I know daddy. He's going he's to turn to me and receive me. That's the picture in, in the, in, of the action in this word call. The whole person is brought into the action. Calling upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we bring these things together, the Christians are the ones calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we must also understand that the calling and the name always go together. There's always an association. The name or reputation of the Lord is the reason or ground for the call. The Christian calls upon the name of the Lord because of all that's contained in the name. His person, His works, His accomplishments. If I know that a man is is, his name is directly associated with his abilities in some area of service, of of plumbing or electricity or, or carpentry or whatever it is, I know he's made a reputation for himself in that field. When I call upon that man, I'm not calling him to ask him, Typically, anything else except for what he's made a name for himself for. If a woman has made a name for herself as a a baker or a seamstress or she has a, a lot of wisdom in child raising, well, when I call upon her, it's because of that those areas in which she has made a name for herself. The the calling and the name are associated, and to perform this call also implies that I am committing myself to receive from that man or woman whatever that thing is that has given them this name. I'm I'm not calling them because they've made a name for themselves in this area so that when they get to my house, I can begin to tell them what to do. Right? You you call the electrician, you say, here's the problem, here's the money. And you just step, step out of the way. Because he's already made a name for himself in this. You've not made a name for yourself. If you had made a name for yourself, you wouldn't be calling him. It always goes together. There's there's an association between the calling and the name and this assumed uh, reception. I'm going to subject myself to you. 
You've made a name for yourself. I've not made the name. In calling, I'm subjecting myself to your name, your accomplishments. And so it's the same with calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The call is always in direct correlation to the things in which He has made His name known. And to do so necessarily implies that we're calling out of a spirit of humility, subjecting ourselves to receive from Him the things in which He has made His name known. That's what it means to call upon the name, to bring your whole self in in trusting, reliance, and subjection at the foot of the name, all of the accomplished works and reputation and person of Christ. What's Paul saying then? He's saying within this, this notion of Catholicity that we saw last week, he's saying all Christians everywhere call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. A Christian is one who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. A Christian church is made up of people. And when they come together, what do they do? They call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a test of orthodoxy. This is a test of true saving faith. A sign that you are a Christian is that you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ... You're not a Christian. That's what he's getting at. A Christian is one who sees and knows something of the person and works and accomplishments that is the name of Christ. All of these things, this name that Christ has made for Himself. A Christian recognizes his or her need for Christ's expertise in saving sinners. And therefore, a Christian is one who calls upon Christ to come and exercise His expertise. Your name has preceded you, so I've called you. So now that you're here, I'll sit back and you do for me the things that have made that name for you, these accomplishments. And all Christians everywhere are known by the name upon which they call. That's what he's saying. Now why is this true? Why is it true that all Christians are described as those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why can we say, why can I say with authority, if you're not calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not a Christian? Why why is that true? Well, I think it's because of the essence of what calling is. What it is. Three three things here that I want to draw out. Calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is a discharge of the duty of Christian worship. It's a personal commitment to Christian service. And it is a natural declaration of Christian deficiency. That's what it it is. A discharge of worship, a devotion to service, and a declaration of need. Now now let's walk through those. Again, we're answering the question, why why do all Christians do this? First, because it's a discharge of, of our duty of Christian worship. From the beginning of time, the people of God have been distinguished... By this thing, calling upon the name of the Lord. That's what made them different. That's what we see in Genesis 4. Verse 26, To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, 
people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The, the, the context here is a distinction between the wicked line of Cain and the godly line of Enosh and Seth. The mark of the godly was that they call upon the name of the Lord. Cain goes off and he builds a city for his name. The people of God gather, they call upon another name. It, the, the understanding of this passage is that they were gathering themselves together as the people of God to worship the God of the people, to call upon the name of the Lord. We see the same thing later of Abram. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 8, it says, He moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Later on in chapter 21, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Then his son Isaac, Genesis 26, built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. Now notice in these scenes with Abraham and Isaac, an altar is built always near a tree or a tree is planted and they call upon the name of the Lord. The scene is clearly what we would call a, a cultic worship. They're gathering to worship God. Whatever else we might say of this calling upon the name of the Lord, we can, we can say this, it's always associated with worshiping God. It is an act of worship. Additionally, and you might have noticed, in all of these passages, it's always Yahweh who's being called upon. Always. You, you see it in, in the capital letters L-O-R-D in your Bible. But then we come to the New Testament and we see that Jesus Christ is being ascribed this same worship. The same thing is said of Him. It's now Christ whose name is being called upon. So to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is to worship Christ as God, even as Abraham and Isaac worshipped Yahweh as God. And that is only acceptable if Jesus Christ is the same God that Abraham worshipped and Isaac worshipped. That only makes sense if that is true. And so what do we learn here when we read that Christians call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ? We learn that a Christian is one who worships Jesus Christ as God. A Christian church is a church where Jesus Christ is worshipped as the God of the Bible. Where Christ is adored as God. Where Christ's person and work and accomplishments are the subject of our meditations and our sermons and our prayers and our praise, our songs. That's a Christian church. It's distinctly Christian. Jesus is our God. To deny this worship to Christ as God is to excuse yourself from Christianity. John said, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. But to participate in this worship of Christ as God is to include yourself in the Christian faith. As again, Paul said, 1 Corinthians 8, For us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Paul in this passage is not describing two different beings. The word Lord, kurios in the Greek, is, is the equivalent to Adonai of the Old Testament, which was used of Jehovah. He's saying there, there's one God, the Father and the Son. One God for us. His name is Jesus. 
And so with Thomas, a Christian is one who sees the truths concerning Jesus and responds, my Lord and my God. That's a Christian. That's, that's what this is. So to call upon the name of the Lord is to worship. It is an act of the duty of Christian worship. It's a distinguishing mark of a Christian. Secondly, this is a devotion to service. To call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is to devote yourself to Christian service, to follow the Lord in all of your ways. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9, the prophet says, speaking for the Lord, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. Or literally, this is interesting in, in studying this verse, serve Him with one shoulder. All the people of God coming together in one shoulder to, to bear this burden of serving the Lord, which we know is no burden at all. It's an act of devoting yourself to serving the Lord. And again, as with the patriarchs, so here, it's always Yahweh that's described as the one, uh, or that's given as the one upon whose name people are calling. The people of God are a people who get behind and follow Yahweh. They call upon His name and, and He becomes the one who directs their paths. He is the God they follow. And so to call upon the name of the Lord is to say, this is my God. Where He leads, I follow He's made a name for Himself as one who is worthy to be followed. He's made a name for Himself as one who is faithful to bring His people through every affliction. Therefore, I'm calling upon His name. I'm giving myself to follow Him in everything that I do. All of, all of my paths are now directed by Him. That's what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. But again, we come to the New Testament and this is applied to Jesus. Jesus Christ is the God of the Bible. It's a call upon Him as Lord, as Master, as Ruler, as the one who's worthy of our subjection and service. He's the one we follow. Jesus said, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. He said to Matthew, follow me. And what did He do? He rose and followed Him. In Luke 6, He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do what I tell you? Now all of those statements would be blasphemous if Christ were not God. And, and the act of following and serving would be futile if He were not one worthy to be followed, worthy of our following and our service. So a Christian is one who serves and follows Jesus Christ as God, not merely as moral example or good teacher, but as God. A Christian church is one where Jesus Christ is served as God. To deny this service to Christ as God is to excuse yourself from Christianity. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 38, Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This is an essential, non-negotiable to be a Christian. If you participate in this service of Christ as God, that is to include yourself in the Christian faith. In Revelation 14.4, the saints are described as those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. That's a Christian. To call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is to say, I'm following Him wherever He goes. Thirdly, to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is to declare your own 
insufficiency and need. Going back to the illustration, I'm not an electrician. For me to call an electrician is to say, I'm, I, I might not say on the phone, hey there, I'm not an electrician and I don't know what I'm talking about, so I've called you. But when I dial his number, what I'm saying as I dial is, I'm not an electrician, I need your help. And that's what it means to call upon the Lord. I'm not the Lord. I need you. I'm insufficient. You're sufficient. It's to, it's to come to Him and declare your need. In ancient times, as God made Himself known through mighty deeds, and He made a name for Himself as Savior and Redeemer, the true people of God learned, when you're in need, call upon the name of the Lord. They knew, 1 Samuel 12, 22, the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake. Psalm 106, 8 says, He saved them for His name's sake, that He might make known His mighty power. And so it's said in Joel chapter 2, verse 32, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I'm not a Savior. He's a Savior. I call on Him. I'm insufficient. He is sufficient. Joel says... Everybody who does that will be saved. Why? Because He's made a name for Himself a Savior. Again, always applied to Yahweh. But then we get to the New Testament and the same things are said of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, in Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes from Joel speaking of Christ. Peter says, Acts 2.22, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then later on he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. His name. He's the one we're calling upon. Salvation's not offered in any other name, he says. It's this Jesus who's made a name for Himself as Savior. So you call upon Him. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What's he talking about? He's talking about preaching the righteousness of God revealed from heaven in the person of Jesus Christ, the imputed righteousness of Christ by faith. A Christian is one who expresses his need of Jesus Christ as God, especially as God the Savior. And a Christian church is one where Jesus Christ is implored and worshipped and pleaded with to meet our needs as our Savior. In a Christian church, Christ is put forth as the one people must come to if they're to be saved. He's our Savior. That's what we declare every week. If you deny your need of Christ as Savior, well, you excuse yourself from Christianity. You say, I don't need Christ. And so you don't call upon His name. Well, then you are by, by definition not a Christian. This, is, this, again, is a test of orthodoxy. Those who do habitually express their need for Christ as Savior, what that means is they are including themselves in the Christian faith. This is essential. Now, how would this apply to the Corinthians? Well, they were, like all fallen men, they were prideful. They walked in many of their own paths. A lot of them had come out of paganism and they had brought some of that into the church. And so what's Paul saying? Christians are those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christians worship Christ as God. They forsake all other gods. For us, there's one Lord, one God. Christians follow Christ as Master, which means they take up their cross and they, follow, they deny themselves daily and follow Him. 
Christians exhibit a general attitude of utter self insufficiency. You don't, you don't, we don't come into the church and say, here I am and I'm here to meet everybody's needs. No, we come together, just it ought to be known amongst the saints, we are insufficient. We've come to gather ourselves before Him who is sufficient. We are those who call upon Christ daily for help and strength and salvation. Thank you for saving me. Don't stop saving me. Keep me saved because you are the Savior. Again, it's whole-souled expectant anticipation. Seeking Christ to be Christ to us. We say, I want Christ to be all of Christ to me. Everything that He is... I need that for me. I don't want Him to hold anything back from me of Himself. And I don't want anything of myself to not receive all of Him. I want all of Him for all of me. That, that, that is a Christian. So I think the application is easy, right? Self-examination. Are you a Christian? It's just simple. Are you a Christian? Do you worship Jesus Christ as God? I didn't say confess, because we would all say that. Jesus is God. I'm saying, do you worship Him as God? You actually worship Him. Have you submitted yourself to Jesus Christ as Master and Lord? Do you, is your life conducted by His edicts? What He says, I do. Where He goes, I go. He's my Master. Have you determined? Is it a, a known determination in your soul and mind, I follow the Lamb wherever He goes? Somebody comes along and they says, well, that's going to mean death. That's fine. I'm, I follow the Lamb wherever He goes, even unto death. I don't stop because He is my God and my Savior. Have you called upon Him in His name as Savior? Are you a Christian? If not, then remember what Peter said in his sermon. Let it be known to all of you that this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by the builders, but He's become the cornerstone. And there's salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus has made a name for Himself as Savior. If, if the Christians in the room could get online and fill out a review form, for Christ as Savior, every one of us would say, five stars, would recommend, brought my sins to Him, took them all, saves me, He's kept me saved. Every one of us. Is, is, there, any, is there even anybody else in, up, up in, in, the, in the running for Savior? No, there's no one else. There's no other name. I can't save me, and I can't save you, so... I would be foolish to trust in me, and you would be foolish to trust in me. You can't save you or anybody else. I've never read any, any of us who put anything anywhere that says, call upon my name and I'll save you. That would be a pretty bold statement. There's only one name that's ever been put forth that says, if you will come to this one, if you will bring all of yourself to rest on all of this one, He saves to the uttermost, period, full stop. There's only one. Only one name. So you call upon that name. You rest in His works. That's what salvation is. If you are a Christian, perhaps there are areas where your self-sufficiency 
is showing. How do you know that? Because you're not calling upon His name. You're not leaning upon Him. You're not resting in Him. You're not, you're not relying on Him. As Christians, do, are you aware or are you able to feel your constant need? Do you, do you find yourself often calling upon His name? Hopefully, it mortifies you when these little hints of self-trust pop up from time to time and you recognize, I've, I've, just, gone, I've just gone an hour, I've just gone two hours, I've just gone four hours without even recognizing or acknowledging my utter insufficiency to take a step or a breath without the Lord Jesus Christ. Hopefully, that, that, that hits your soul like you were just involved in a car, almost involved in a car accident, but you didn't know it. And somebody came by later and said, do you realize that you were an inch from death? And it would shock you. Hopefully, that's the way it is. It should shock you. I was that close to self-sufficiency? Who am I? If I stand on my sufficiency for a minute, I plummet to hell. It's not me. I must rely upon Him. Hopefully you, you feel that. And if not, then you need to call upon His name more. Oftentimes we need the Spirit of God to remind us of the mighty name that Jesus has made for Himself and of our weakness. He's made a name for Himself. I've not made a name for myself. At all. Not a single name. Nobody has ever come to me. Not once. Of all the people who have known me the best my whole life, nobody has ever come to me and said, Hey, Paul, would you save me from my sins? Because I've not made a name for myself in that area. And I can't make a name for myself in that area. But countless millions have gone to Christ because He's made a name for Himself as Savior. And He saved them. We need to be reminded of that often. I'm not a Savior. I'm, I'm not a sanctifier. I'm not a Lord. I'm not a master. I'm not a ruler. I'm not a judge. I, 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 live, I live my life exhibiting this attitude, calling upon the name. That, that's a Christian, and we, ought, we need to be reminded of that. It's the name of Jesus that is above every other name, not your name and not my name. It's the name of the Lord, which is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are saved. Not my name. My name's not a strong tower. I've... I've I've, I've attempted to run into my own name a few times and it's, and it's not provided me any, any uh, safety at all. My name, your name, we're not, our names are not a strong tower. May God grant us the grace to see what He sees, which is we're weak. We got nothing. But also His full sufficiency so that we'll be people who call upon His name. When we turn our attention to Christ crucified, we understand that on the cross, Christ was taking the wrath of God for sinners. He was being put to death by the hands of men, but in that act also He was dying as our vicarious lamb. Expiatory and propitiatory sacrifice. Taking away our sins and bearing in His body the wrath of God for our sins. You have sins and I have sins you deserve punishment I deserve punishment the Bible teaches Christ took the punishment as I said earlier he's the only one in his field there's no one else under any religion 
that's ever been put forth, that's ever been held up as the one who took the wrath of God for sins. Not one. Man-made religions don't have a vicarious substitute like this. They might, they might say, we'll kill a lamb and now be really good and you might make it. Or we'll, we'll kill this and you do your best and you might make it. The Scripture says Christ has been slain. The Lamb of God has been slain. He took the wrath. Christ's body and blood are the only offering that has ever been given for sinners. Christ's body and blood is the only offering that has been accepted in the heavens. There's only one way. There's only one name. Only one possibility of salvation. So what we ought to do when we think about Christ on the cross is we ought to say, what a name. Here, here's the one. The only one. There were, there were two others crucified and one of them had to be saved by Him. He's the only one. As we come to the Lord's table, let's keep that in mind. I'll read from the account of Luke's Gospel. It says, When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among, among yourselves. For I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So as we come to the Lord's table again, we are reminded in the breaking of the bread of Christ's body broken for us. And so when you, when you see the bread, look beyond the bread to the body of Christ broken for sinners. For us, His body broken for us. You have sins, I have sins. His body for us, His life for us. Now I'll remind you of what the Apostle says. Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So as the elements are passed, do the work of carrying your soul beyond the physical elements to the Christ of the cross. Examine yourself, and then we'll come to the table together.